Gracious God, we give you thanks for the gift of this day. Even as we turn the page from a season of thanksgiving into a season to, to prepare ourselves for the celebration of the birth of your Son and our Savior. We thank you for this day and this season and all that it means to us and pray that you would visit with us now that we may hear your word and live it out in this world. Through Christ our Lord we pray, amen. Well, obviously we're beginning this new series of messages leading us into and through the Advent season that we're calling Star-Crossed. We're gonna be doing everything we can to prepare ourselves for the birth of the Son of God and the Savior of sinners. And over the next several weeks, we're gonna be looking at the birth story of Jesus almost as if it were a prism so that we're looking through it, thinking about what it means in different dimensions in the different areas of our lives. Christmas and the birth of Jesus is one of, let's be honest with ourselves, one of the high holy days for the Christian faith. What's the other one? Easter. Christmas and Easter are kind of the, the bookend high holy days of the Christian faith because Christmas we celebrate the birth of Jesus, Easter we celebrate his death and his resurrection. There's a real sense in which we cannot truly understand and accept and appreciate the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus without looking at it through the lens of the incarnation, God taking on flesh, Emmanuel, God with us, God being born in that little baby in Bethlehem. In the same sense, there's reality that we can't fully understand the birth of Jesus without recognizing that it is going to lead us to the death of Jesus. The two events in his life go hand in hand. We understand the incarnation in light of the crucifixion and resurrection. We understand the crucifixion and resurrection because of the incarnation. God became man. We're going to do that over the next several weeks through a familiar story. I want to invite your attention in just a moment to a story from the second chapter of Matthew's Gospel. But before we get to that, I want you to think about what was one of the happiest moments of your life. Not necessarily the happiest moment of your life, but what was one of the happiest moments of your life? Take a minute, make some noise, turn to somebody around you and share with each other what was a happiest moment of your life. This is when you talk to each other. Some of you, some of you are looking at me like, you know we're Presbyterians, we don't do this. Some of you had really short stories. Others of you could go on until sometime this afternoon sharing these stories. I actually taste tested this question with my wife this week. I said, what was the happiest moment of your life? And see, I, with her, I said, the. And she said, the day we were married, I thought, <laughs> you never know, you know. Um, 
Now, I want to share with you a story about one of the happiest moments in someone's life, because I believe that the second chapter of Matthew tells us a story about incredible happiness, while at the same time it tells us a story about political intrigue. Listen with me to the Word of God from Matthew 2. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born the king of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Christ was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they said, for this is what the prophet has written, but you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and make a careful search for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and <laughs> worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen in the east went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and of incense and myrrh. Having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. Amen. May the same Holy Spirit who inspired the writing and preservation of these words inspire them for our understanding as well. My suspicion is that this is a familiar story. Uh, for most of us, if not all of us, this is not a new story. This is a story that we can kind of play on the tape in our mind. We, we know it. But you know the old line about things that are familiar. Familiarity breeds contempt. Sometimes we think we are familiar with something and we're really, we're, we really are not. So much so that I'm afraid that in our American culture today, our understanding of this story is shaped less by the Bible and more by the manger scenes we put in our houses. Out of curiosity, this is not a scientific test. Your eternal destiny does not hang on the answer to this question. But how many of you have started decorating your houses for Christmas? Okay, that's a smaller ratio than we saw at the 845 service. How many of you who have started decorating your house for Christmas have pulled out a manger scene and put it somewhere in that? There it is. Okay, in the manger scene, what all do you have there? Let me see. You've got the, you've got the uh, little manger, the, the stable area. You've got Mary and Joseph. You've got the little manger and little baby Jesus in the manger. Um, we have, uh, you got cows, uh, sheep, camel. Sometimes there's a donkey. Some manger scenes have a dog. Okay. Um, what else? Angel. There's an angel there. 
um, shepherds. Remember, they showed up that night. A uh, lot of uh, manger scenes have the little innkeeper there with his light, like, hey, you hadn't paid your check yet. Um, and then, is that it? What else? Welcome to Chuck's Pet Peeve. Do you notice that, that Matthew said after Jesus had been born in Bethlehem? The wise men, the Magi, were not there the night that Jesus was born. They showed up sometime later. We don't know whether it was a day later, two weeks later, or some scholars think it may have been up to uh, a year later. But most of us have our picture of this story framed by what comes in the, the manger scene that you bought back, brought back from a vacation you were on somewhere. We need to engage it through the Scripture. Now, the Magi, we don't know uh, exactly who or what they were. They were not kings, uh, despite the fact that sometime this year we're going to sing We Three Kings of Orient Are. Uh, it's, it's a traditional hymn. Uh, more often, more, more likely than not, the Magi were scientists. Um, most likely they were astronomers. They were men who studied the celestial bodies and probably had a smattering of astrologer mixed in with them as well. They interpreted the stars and what that meant for human endeavor. Now, how did they know that this star meant that the king of the Jews had been born? Remember that um, about 800 years before the birth of Jesus, the Jewish people were um, defeated in battle and they were exiled to Babylon. Persia ultimately defeated Babylon and occupied all of their territory. Magi are probably from Persia, which is today Iran. They have lingering in their historical writings the stories of the Jewish people and their expectation that a Messiah, an anointed one, was going to be born. At the time that Jesus was born, there was kind of this worldwide expectation that a global ruler was going to be born, someone who would lead not only the Jewish people, but the entire world. So what we have here is this mixture of Jewish expectation of the birth of the Messiah that lingers in Persia, these magi who are studying the stars and trying to interpret exactly what the constellations mean right now. And this particular star that is unusual, what does that mean? Mixed with this worldwide expectation that a global ruler is going to be born. You get that all mixed in with the magi. We don't know exactly how many there were. How many do you think there were? Three, right. You know why we think three? They presented their gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Our understanding of the number of the Magi is based on the gifts, not the people. Uh, some biblical scholars have conjectured there could have been as many as 14 Magi who showed up. Wouldn't that be fun? Okay, let's get the jokes about the Magi out of the way. You know what their occupation was? They were firemen. It says in the Bible they came from afar. Now, the, the other joke about the Magi is that, uh, you know, they were typical men. If they had been wise women, they would have asked for directions, they would have shown up on time, they would have helped with the delivery, and they would have brought casseroles, 
practical gifts and diapers. As it was with the Magi, with the wise men, you get gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Now, when, when they know that this baby has been born or is being born, if he's going to be in the line of the Jewish leaders, who do you go to? Obviously, if he's going to be in the, the royal dynasty, you go to the king, you ask the king, hey, do you have a baby recently? Where is the one who's been born king of the Jews? We saw a star in the east, and we've come to worship him. Herod wasn't particularly happy with this news. Herod is a real study in contrasts. On the one hand, he was a very productive and a very good king in that he built the temple, uh, he built palaces, he did things that were good for the Jewish people. But despite all of the good that he did, Herod was also an incredibly insecure leader because he was only half Jewish. That insecurity bred a fear in him that someone was going to usurp his throne. So he killed his wife, he killed his children, he killed cousins, he killed siblings. Anyone that he perceived might be a threat to his power, he eliminated so that he could hold on to his power. Incredibly powerful, but incredibly insecure. That insecurity led to his fear, so that when the, the Magi show up and they ask about the birth of the baby that's going to be king, you know, verse 3 says, when Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all of Jerusalem with him. Jerusalem was disturbed because they knew how malevolent Herod could be. They knew to what extent Herod would go to eliminate the potential threat to his throne. They knew what kind of a person he was. They knew that if he saw a threat, even in the form of a baby, he would eliminate it. It's almost as if Herod heard the Magi's report, we saw a star in the east, we've come to worship him. Herod said, fake news. It's not real. It's not going to happen. I won't let it happen. If it's happened, I'm going to stop it. I'm the only one who can make Israel great again. And he just shuts it down. If you know the larger story, you know what Herod does. When he finds out that the, the Magi have not come back, he has every child in the area, every male child in the area, two years old or younger, executed. It's called the slaughter of the innocents. With all of his power and with all of his insecurity, he is incredibly naive. Go make a careful search for the child. He doesn't send anybody with him. Surely he's going to send, uh, uh, let me send some soldiers with you. I got the Navy SEALs out, and I'm going to send the Navy out to, to go with you and find out exactly where the child is so that they can take care of this situation when they find it. Herod doesn't do that. He's incredibly naive. He just sends them on their way and says, when you find him, report to me. In, in Bethlehem, which many of you I know have been there, some of you are going to be going next year with uh, Rich and Kelly Conwisher, uh, you'll see this. Uh, Bethlehem is just about a stone's throw from Jerusalem. You can see one from the other. So the Magi make their way to Bethlehem. They find the place where the star is directing, 
and they go and see the baby. Now, it's not the stable that we typically think of that you have on the mantle or the coffee table in your house. It most likely was a cave. There is in Jerusalem, in uh, Bethlehem rather, a grotto. Uh, it was a cave where it is believed that this is the specific place where Jesus was born. Uh, dating back to the first century, uh, the early church fathers describe uh, the grotto, this small cave, as being the location where Jesus was born. This is a picture, uh, almost looks like a fireplace, doesn't it? Uh, but this man is, is bowing down and looking. You can see there in front of him on the floor, the marble uh, in front of him is a silver uh, star-shaped spot. That's traditionally understood to be the place where Mary gave birth. So the Magi go to Bethlehem and they find this place and they settle in. Now, Scott was asking earlier about uh, how many of us like to receive gifts, how many of us like to express gratitude for receiving gifts. In our heart of hearts, don't we really kind of like to give gifts with the expectation that there's going to be a little quid pro quo? You know, Jim, I'll give you something for your birthday. Mine is in September. You know, very likely these magi are trying to curry favor with a future king. We're coming to bring you gifts so that if at some point in the future we need something from you, you'll give it to us. A long time ago, C.S. Lewis wrote a little essay called On Xmas and Christmas in which he describes this preparation for a particular season in a nation called Nyatirb. Now, Nyatirb is Britain spelled backwards. And he offers a pretty scathing indictment on our attitude towards the season, I think, even today. Listen to what he says. In the middle of winter, when fogs and rains most abound, they have a great festival which they call Xmas, and he spells it E-X-M-A-S. And for 50 days, they prepare for it in the fashion I shall describe. First of all, every citizen is obliged to send to each of his friends and relations a, a square piece of hard paper stamped with a picture, which in their speech is called an Xmas card. But the pictures represent birds sitting on branches or trees with a dark green prickly leaf or else men in such garments as the Nyatirbians believe that their ancestors wore 200 years ago, riding in coaches such as their ancestors used, or houses with snow on the roofs. The Nyatirbians are unwilling to say what these pictures have to do with a festival guarding, as I suppose, some sacred mystery. And because all men must send these cards, the marketplace is filled with a crowd of those buying them so that there is great labor and weariness. Sounds like Black Friday. Having bought as many as they supposed to be sufficient, they return to their houses and find there the like cards which others have sent to them. And when they find cards from any tomb, they have also sent cards. They throw them away and give thanks to the gods that this labor at least is over for another year. But when they find cards from any to whom they have not sent, they beat their breasts and wail and utter curses against the sender. And having sufficiently lamented their misfortune, they put on their boots again and go out into the fog and rain and buy a card for him also. 
let this account suffice for Xmas cards. We get it. Been there, done that. Keep something in a closet to give the neighbor who brings you something when you hadn't planned to give them something. Whether it was quid pro quo that led the magi to take gifts to the Christ child or something else, the text says when they saw the star over the place where Jesus was born, well, reading between the lines, it says that something happened. It's, it's a simple word in the English language. The Bible says that they were overjoyed. Now, that's one simple word for you and me, but that word condenses down four words in the Greek language. What the Greek actually says is that when the Magi saw this place, they rejoiced. They were happy. But it says they rejoiced with joy. They were really happy. But it actually says they rejoiced with joy that was great. They were over the moon happy. But it actually says they rejoiced with joy that was great exceedingly. Let me explain something to you. These men went berserk. They went nutso. They were doing backflips and handstands. You remember the story that you told or that you have finally come up with, one of the happiest moments of your life? Do you remember how you felt in that moment? You, you felt a little bit like the Grinch. You know, your heart expanded three times that day. You felt so great. You were so excited. You were on top of the world. Life couldn't get any better. You know, it just occurred to me that my wife's life has gone downhill for the last 35 years. <laughs> oh, well. They rejoiced with joy that was great exceedingly. This was not just a, oh, hey, we're really happy that you've had a baby. Here, here's a gift. They went berserk. Over that grotto, which we showed you a picture of a few moments ago, there is built to this day a church in Bethlehem. It's called the Church of the Nativity. This is probably the longest existing church in the history of the Christian faith. It was originally constructed in about 340 A.D. by Helena, the mother of Emperor Constantine. She had the church built over the grotto where tradition held from the first century that this was the place where Jesus was born. In 614 A.D., the Persians came through the Holy Land and they were destroying all of the churches. When they came to this particular church, they stopped. They didn't destroy it because in the floor of the church were mosaics made out of small tiles. And as they looked at those mosaics, they realized that the men in this picture, the Magi, were wearing clothes like they were wearing. These are people like us, they thought. So they didn't destroy the church. That floor is still there. If you go there, you can see it. It's the, the floor of the church has been raised, but over those mosaics of depicting the Magi, there are windows or doors that you can look through and see them dating back to the 300s. The church is still there. But to get into that church, you have to pass 
through a door. This is the only way into the church of the nativity. It's called the door of humility. You cannot walk through it like you walked through the door to come into church today. You have to bow down. When it was constructed, it was determined that the Magi's joy led to great humility, and so in order for pilgrims to come and worship in this church, they wanted that same humility to cause you to bow down, to worship, to enter the church. What exactly happened to the Magi that day when they experienced that rejoicing with joy great exceedingly? We don't know, but something changed in them. So having put a question to you earlier, I want to put another question to you now, and, and this is not one for discussion in the pews, but the question I want to invite you to chew on today, maybe throughout this season, that simply is this. When did the word God become more than just a word to you? When did the word God become more than just a word to you? When did you realize that God was real, that that fun little story about the little baby born in Bethlehem was not just a fun little story about a baby born in Bethlehem, but is real, and that God took on flesh and lived and died for you and for me and rose from the dead to give us the promise of everlasting life. When did the word God become more than a word to you? How has your life changed since then? Later on in his gospel, Matthew pulls together a lot of Jesus' teachings. And as you know, Jesus taught significantly in the form of parables. And in the 13th chapter of Matthew's gospel, he tells the parable of the pearl of great price. He says, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant who went in search of finding great pearls. And when he found one of great value, he went and he sold everything that he had and bought that. I think that's what happened with the Magi that day. They recognized in that little baby a pearl of great price, something that was worth everything they had ever dreamed of. And, and while they went home by another way, we know they took I-75 instead of I-85. It may have taken them a little bit longer, but they got home. As Vic Pence used to say, they went home, changed people another way. Something within them changed. And I think that when you recognize that God is more than a word, that Jesus is real, that he came to live, to show you how to live, to die to pay the price, to rise from the dead, to give you the promise of everlasting life, you rejoice with joy, great exceedingly, and your life is never the same. Let us pray. Eternal God, you who considered us worthy of great sacrifice and gave us all that is, 
We thank you for sending Jesus into this world, for showing us the depth of your love in him. I pray for men and women and youths and children who are gathered here today and pray that you would work in their lives so that they would recognize who Jesus is for all of us and for each of us. Send us from this place today changed by the joy which you have given to us in Jesus. Amen.